At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, listeners. I want to introduce you to a new podcast from Artful Narratives Media, hosted by my friend, who is the dean and director of the Juilliard School, Alicia Graf Mack. It's called Moving Moments. The show explores the lives and creative process of the dance world's biggest stars, including internationally recognized ballerina Misty Copeland, Associate Artistic Director of the New York City Ballet Wendy Whalen, Tony Award-winning choreographer Sonia Taye, Artistic Director of Paul Taylor Dance Company Michael Novak, and yours truly. You might remember Alicia from my interview with her earlier this season on Front Row. If you missed it, go back and have a listen. She's inspiring. Here's a quick bit. From Moving Moments, I think you'll love it. Enjoy. Welcome to Moving Moments, a brand new show from Artful Narratives Media, featuring the dance world's most innovative and groundbreaking artists. I'm your host, Alicia Graf Mack, Dean and Director of Dance at the Juilliard School. Join me each week, starting Wednesday, February 8th, as I sit down with my closest colleagues and friends to discuss the creative process and living a purposeful life in dance. This season, you'll hear from Emmy-nominated choreographer and internationally celebrated tap dancer and director, Chloe Arnold. Why do I tap dance? Because it feels amazing. And it feels amazing not because I'm always joyous, but because no matter what I'm going through in life, it transforms me and it transports me to the space where I'm happiest. And here's legendary dancer Misty Copeland about building self-assurance and developing a stronger voice through dance. I can really pinpoint like the age of seven when I started to listen to and absorb the lyrics I was hearing and apply them to how I was feeling. And it was the first time that I found a way of being in touch with my emotions. It gave me purpose. And then once I discovered ballet, it all just clicked and and I just blossomed. I also caught up with Tony Award-winning choreographer Sonia Taya about where, when, and how she understood that she wanted to be a creator. Underground raves. That was the root of how I knew I wanted to be a choreographer because I would stand on the top of the speakers and see the sea of people. And I remember thinking in my mind, how do I make that? And you won't want to miss principal dancer with American Ballet Theater, James Whiteside, as he talks about the importance of experimentation. If you have an interest, it's really exciting to give yourself the freedom to explore it. You don't have to be good at it. You don't have to succeed. You don't have to make money. It's important to give yourself the freedom to try. 
So get ready to hear from artists like you've never heard from them before. Be sure to follow the show now on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss an episode. And I'll see you on my birthday next Wednesday, February 8th, with our first guest, Chloe Arnold. Until then, visit artfulnarrativesmedia.com and follow us on Instagram at Moving Moments Podcast. See you soon. This is Front Row, and I'm your host, James Whiteside, principal dancer and choreographer with American Ballet Theater and the author of Center Center. Take a seat in the front row as I discuss the creative process and the business of creativity with the world's brightest stars. Susan Jaffe is the artistic director of American Ballet Theater, where she had danced for 22 years and held the rank of principal dancer. She has danced the leading roles in nearly all the classical repertoire and has danced famous ballets created by George Balanchine, Anthony Tudor, Kenneth McMillan, Jerome Robbins, Twyla Tharp, and many more. Susan previously served as the Dean of the School of Dance at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts and as the Artistic Director of Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. This is her first year as Director of American Ballet Theater. I was a little nervous to talk to my new boss in such a candid way, but Susan gave a great interview. It was great to get to know her a little better and learn about her vision for American Ballet Theater. We discuss her early years at ABT, how it and the dancers have changed, and how to adapt classics into uncancelable works. Enjoy this episode of Front Row with ABT's newest director, Susan Jaffe. Susan Jaffe, welcome to Front Row. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I am thrilled that you're here. Uh, Not only are you an esteemed guest on Front Row, but you are officially now my artistic director at American Ballet Theater. How does it feel to finally be at the helm after such a a lead up? Oh, it's great. I mean, I'm having a great time. I mean, it's a big job, uh, but I am having a wonderful time, wonderful time with the dancers, wonderful time with the staff. I know everybody. Uh, So it's really like coming home. Amazing. Yeah. We'll get into all of that. I'm definitely going to dive in deeper there, but I'd like to know a little bit more about how you got to where you are today, how you got to become a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater. Can you tell me a little bit about your training as a young dancer? Yes. I trained with a woman named Hortensia Fonseca in Maryland at the Maryland, at that time it was called the Maryland School of the Ballet. And she um, had three principal dancers from her school. It was me. Uh, well, first was Cheryl Yeager, mm-hmm. then me, and then Julie Kent. So we're all from the same school. Mrs. Fonseca also had an amazing, her son, uh, an amazing dancer who passed away from AIDS in the early eighties. Um, but she, she, um, really spent a lot of our childhood creating, story ballets for us mm-hmm. and we performed twice a year in these big story ballets cool. and yeah and she even had us choreographing our own things and in other um performance opportunities and so when i was about 13 she said to all of us well you know it's really time for you to go up to new york and to get scholarships and she said i'm very good with the young ones but I 
I need you to go somewhere else to for the later training. And actually, she brought a woman named Michelle Lees to AB, AB, I mean, to Maryland School of the Ballet, and she mm-hmm. was in the National Ballet in Washington, and uh, just a wonderful teacher. So we came up in the summers to get scholarships, and I first went to SAB when I was mm-hmm. thirteen, and the next year, and I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved everything about SAB. Um, but the next year, I said, you know, I really want to. I'm so used to stories. Yeah. And I really want to tell stories. And yeah. so I went over to ABT and I was there every summer until I turned 16. And then I moved to New York to be in the second company of ABT. So now it's called Studio Company. At that time, it was called Ballet Repertory Company. Wow. So can you tell me what the summer programs were like when you were in the summer program versus what they're like now? Um, I, I would have to say they're pretty much the same. You get yeah. your technique class, your point class, your partnering class, your modern class. You know, we had jazz at that time yeah. um, and some choreography as well. Uh, were you living you in New York by yourself at 16? I had, I was living on 68th Street. Uh-huh. with two other young women. And so we were by ourselves. One was a student from Juilliard, pianist. Uh-huh. And the other one was a ballet dancer from my school in Maryland. Wow. I mean, that school, what a roster of dancers to come out of that school. She yeah. must have been doing something correct. So you'll have to forgive me. In my home, I live in a very old pre-war apartment building. and the uh, the pipes talk here. So I don't know if you can hear that, but there is a very fascinating gurgling emanating from my kitchen sink. Uh, <laughs> it's a very grassroots affair here at Front Row. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I went to the summer program as well, and uh, that was 2001 for me. And I was 16, and I lived in New York by myself as well. And I rented out Kirk Peterson's apartment, who was wow. a former director of repertoire at at American Ballet Theater, and he was traveling and and staging work all summer, and rented his apartment to me on seventy, what was it, seventieth Street, and to be a sixteen-year-old living in New York City is quite a vibe, I must say, and <laughs> I I can't say I was hugely focused on the work, but I had a formative experience. Yes. I think when you're young in New York, you always have a formative experience, you know, um, for us to be three young women in an apartment by ourselves, ballet theater at that time was on 61st street. So we walked to work, you know, and it was just sort of this square, you know, we'd go to restaurants over there. We would walk to work. Mm -hmm. If we were really feeling adventurous, we would go down to 59th street where there was this famous ice cream shop called Rumpelmeyer's at the time. (laughs) I've never heard of it. Is it no longer around? I don't think it's around, but it was sort of a high end ice cream shop. It's the Van Leeuwen of yesteryear. Exactly, exactly. Rumpelmeyers. That's quite a name. Rumpelmeyers, yes. I don't think I'd like to get ice cream from a place with rump in the name. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't think about that back then. Yeah, yeah. Wait, so I was reading, you know, reading about you on the interwebs as one who hosts a podcast must. 
And I was reading about some of your early opportunities with American Ballet Theater. And I read somewhere that you replaced Gelsie Kirkland in, gosh, what, what was the ballet? In like on very short notice or something. Can you tell me that story? Yes. So um, when Baryshnikov took over ABT, that was in August of 1980. Mm-hmm. And um, he had a big three months. Can you imagine? Three months of rehearsal. No, I can't imagine. Where it's, it was an amazing. And we had character dance. We were learning. We were um, rehearsing. And he just wanted the company to sort of have the style that he wanted it to have. So he mm. really we reworked the whole company. And we were to open at the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm which is 20 minutes from where I grew up and 10 minutes from where I was born. And um, so Gelsie Kirkland and Patrick Bissell were to dance the pas de deux in a, a gala called Pas d'Escalave. And mm. that is from Le Corsair. And back in September, they had put me in a room learning it with Mariana Tchaikovsky, Fernanda Bahonis, mm. Uh, Gelsie, you know, just a, a bunch of How old were people. you? 18. Goodness gracious. And I remember looking at the rehearsal schedule and saying, oh, no, 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 that, that was a mistake. Um, so I went into the offices and I said, I'm so sorry, you know, to bother you, but I think you've made a mistake on the schedule. Uh-huh. And um, the register at the time turned to me and said, it's not a mistake. Wow. But I was so scared, you know, and I was just backing out. So <laughs> anyway, I did learn it and then I dropped it because, you know, everybody else that were principals and mm-hmm. and so we were opening in December at the Kennedy Center and we had a um dress rehearsal and Gelsey and Patrick did not show up to the dress rehearsal. Oh my gosh. And Misha fired them. That and, is yeah. There was wild. a history. Yeah, there yeah, was of a course, history. Of course. So he fired them, and he came up to me, and he said, "How would you like to go on in the place of Gelty Kirkland?" And I said, "Well, you know, thank you very much, but I am supposed to be the fifth girl in the back in Shardish and Ramonda, mm-hmm. and this is my first performance, and I'm 18 years old, and I, I can't do it. I'm not ready." And he said, oh, you'll be fine. And so they threw me in a studio with Sasha and this woman named Diana Joffe, who was coaching us. And the next night I was on stage. And wow. all I remember about that performance was there was a, I had a veil wrapped around my head. And um, I was backstage and I, the curtain opened and I could feel this big whoosh of cold air from the audience. Yeah. And my veil was shaking. I was shaking. Um, and that is pretty much all I remember about the performance. I do know I actually danced it because there are photographs, but that's it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it was. And then I literally went from being, you know, really nobody from Bethesda, Maryland. And then suddenly everybody wanted to know who I was. And, um, 
interviews and talking about my physical features. And I didn't even know I had green eyes until they described my eyes. And then I was looking in the mirror like, really? I have green, green eyes. It was insane. Um, and I had always felt like I had this name that I had to live up to. Yeah. And I wasn't ready for any of it. And so I just worked so hard. I worked so hard to live up to my name. And I kept thinking at times, I kept thinking, when are they going to find out I don't know how to do this stuff? Hmm. And so I had the whole imposter syndrome thing going on. Um, But I worked so hard. And I continued to get roles and I continued to progress. And I was made a principal in 1983. Wow. At what was that, 20 years old or something? Uh, 21, yeah. 21. So at which point did you accept yourself? Because to me, you know, with imposter syndrome, there's so much about ourselves as dancers that we feel is inadequate. And we look at our peers, we see better dancing, more beautiful people, more beautiful bodies, etc. At which point did you say, I'm proud to be me? 10 years. That sounds about ten, right. 10 years. Yeah. And, and um, what was the turning point there? I just felt like I had, I had done so much of the repertory. I had done Don Quixote. I had done Sleeping Beauty, Swan Lake, Giselle, um, just all of the full lengths. And I finally felt like, okay, I, I have some knowledge. Hmm. You know, I have some knowledge. But it also, you know, I'm, I'm a restless soul and I love to learn. And so I also felt that I was going in the wrong direction. Hmm. And so I just didn't feel like it was deep, like what I, my performances were deep. And I wanted my soul to speak and I couldn't access it. And, um, because everything was going on intellectually, you know, you Mm -hmm. can, you can only be that intellectual for so long in, in, um, researching a role and doing all Mm -hmm. those things. And then you have to really let your heart and your intuition to tell the story. And so I did several things. Uh, I, stood in front of Julio Horvath, who created Gyrotonics. Mm-hmm. And I said, I've been in this professionally in this business for 10 years, and I don't even know where movement comes from. Like, where does it come from? Like, how do I access it from deep within? And he said, well, okay, let's start at the beginning. <laughs> so I was doing deep, deep yoga. Um, I would go to him after my long days, um, finish at seven, go to Julio at seven thirty, and do a two hour session. And then on Sundays and, um, and he taught me so much about energy mm. and about, um, sort of a, a much bigger viewpoint of the universe and art artistry in general. Mm. Uh, I also worked with, I started working with a dramaturg Mm. at that time, uh, Byam Stevens, who still works with some of the dancers at ABT. 
I worked with and, them on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. And because, you know, you there just isn't a whole lot of time in rehearsals to dive more deeply into yeah. the roles. And yeah. you know, you leave your rehearsals and you have so many questions, right? And you're you're trying to put your own heart and soul into something, but you don't feel like you've got enough information, right? So and there's no time. So I I work with Byam couple nights a week as well. Um, and where he, he's very Socratic in his, as you know, very mm-hmm. Socratic in his mm-hmm. methods. Um, and it helped me to discover more deeply who my characters were. And then lastly, I met Irina Kopakova. Ah, uh, yes. So it all converged. I mean, within the two years, you know, span. Yeah. And so for, for, uh, my listeners, Irina Kopakova, is a legendary ballerina and has been coaching at American Ballet Theater since the 80s. And she is uh, a generous, uh, generous soul with, with a wealth of information and experience and just extreme talent in coaching and understanding artists. Sorry. And tell She's me about sublime. your... sublime. She is yeah. sublime. And when, you know... Misha introduced me to her on a videotape. He puts, at that time, they were VHSs. I, mm-hmm. Maybe half the audience doesn't even know what that is. Um, and on comes this video, and it's this ballerina dancing Raymonda. Uh-huh. And there was such purity in her movements. And I was so moved. You know, Raymonda isn't necessarily a deep, dramatic ballet, but I was so moved. I had a lump in my throat. and this the beauty the deep beauty and truth of her movement and interpretation and so i i um nisha says to me would you like to work with her and i said well let me think about that okay <laughs> <laughs> and so he brought her and um at that time i was really the only one that would work with her and mm. I stood in front of her also like I did with Julie and I stood in sixth position with that means feet parallel, arms hanging at the side. And I said, I don't know anything. Start from the beginning. And so I literally just decided that I was not going to come in with, oh, I've, I've already done this and that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that I just wanted to learn from her. and. Yeah. She really taught me coordination, um, the coordination, the style, and also the energy with which to use your muscles, your movement, and with your heart as well. So she is, she is really a, a very sublime being on this earth. And, and I've seen her work in all the other uh, principals and soloists at ABT mm-hmm. um, can really see her work all the way through uh, everybody. So yeah. anyway, yeah, so it was uh, for me, oh, and at the time, nobody else would work with her. So what changed? Why did people begin working with her? And why wouldn't they in the first place? Well, because she wanted to change everything, you know, and she would give me 15 corrections for a glissade PK yeah. Arabesque. And so I had to say to her, Ira, you know, you can only give me one correction per step 
per day. <laughs> and that's what I can take in. So I actually had to teach her how to work with Americans as well. Yeah. Um, and the other ballerinas at that time, the only other people that were even put in a room with her were their women. Mm-hmm. And they all ran out of the room screaming and crying. I can't take it. I can't take it, you know? Hmm. And so um, I was like, well, too bad for you. So anyway, I started that's getting... So, that's I so know. different than the experience I feel with her. You know, when I'm in the room with her, um, you know, I have a... I feel deeply understood as an artist. I feel like she's going to tell me everything she needs to tell me. And she's going to allow me to be me. Yes. And yeah, it, it's really beautiful. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think she's also, you know, when she was much younger, it was like, this is the Russian way. This is how we mm-hmm. do it, you know. And um, But people started seeing me improve. So then mm-hmm. they slowly started going back to, to Ira. And um, then we all started working with her. And yes, she's, she's th- there's a much more of a dialogue um, with her and you know, she's really gets the best out of people. Yeah. And, you know, just going back a little bit to the acceptance of oneself as an artist, you know, I feel like there's almost a bit of a paradox in, in trying to accept oneself because I don't know, we're classical artists that are constantly performing roles that so many people have done before us. And we all have these ideas of what these roles should look like. And for me, something that I dealt with specifically when I joined American Ballet Theater was how am I going <laughs> to live up to these performances of the past? And how am I going to make my mark on any of this? I feel inadequate. I feel like an imposter. And the paradox in that is Nobody really wants to see you try to be anybody else. Right. And it takes so long to realize that the natural movement that comes from a person's soul is the thing that's the hook for the audience. Completely. And it just takes time to to get there though. And then, you know, dance I'm a dancer in my 30s, in my late 30s, I'm 38 and I finally stopped trying to be other people and it feels so good. And the response to being my natural artist is, is overwhelming and really reaffirming. And I I think every dancer goes through that in their thirties. I agree. I remember thinking, you know, everybody else can tell a story so much better than I, you know, Mm. Natalia Makarva is a bazillion times more interesting than I am. Cynthia Gregory is, you know, all these people. And um, finally, it just came to, okay, well, actually, if I just tell my story, Mm. the way I tell it, the way I feel, um, it changed everything. Yeah. You you can only rail against yourself for so long. Yeah. (laughs) And it gets a bit tiresome. It sure does. (laughs) I want to move on from your time as a a dancer and talk about uh, your life as a director. And did you always know that you wanted to direct at some point? Actually, no. Um, And it was funny because when I was a dancer, quite a few people would come to me and say, you know, you'd be a really great director. 
Hmm. And um, I always thought that was a little bit insulting. Uh, why is because, that? Well, because I thought, you know, well, why aren't you looking at me as a dancer? You know, yeah. why are you looking at me now and 10 years from now, 20 years from now as a, as a director? Uh-huh. And um, I think also because people probably notice that is because I love to teach. I love. And so when all the new uh, men would come in to learning principal roles, they always put them with me hmm. because I would teach, okay, the hand position, this goes mm-hmm. there, that goes there. And then this is the role. And I, I loved passing on the information. And so, but when I retired, I said to myself, there are three things I will never do. I will never teach. I will never choreograph. And I will never come back as the queen. So the first thing I did was I came back as the queen. (laughs) (laughs) That's in Swan Lake, I presume? It was the Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty. Okay. (laughs) And it was because Kevin needed, you know, they had all these people out. And he came to me on his hands and knees. He said, please, would you please do the queen? I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) you know. And uh, so I did that. And then uh, the new JKO started. and. That's ABT's I, school. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And so John Meehan, which, who, who was the first director mm-hmm. of the school, he came to me and he said, how would you like to teach? And I said, oh, no, no, no. Um, I can't do that. You know, I, I'm sort of too self-centered, um, too self-focused. And I, I just have no, don't think I would ever be very good at it. So he said, well, why don't you try it for a couple of months? and then." And if you don't like it, then you can leave. Mm. So, okay. So I thought I would try it, you know, what the heck. And so I started teaching and I found, because I was very analytical about placement. And you Mm -hmm. know, when I'm teaching you, like I'm very worried about, worried Mm -hmm. or focused on placement because that's the the body mechanics. I'm worried about my placement too. (laughs) Oh, no, no, you're going to be fine. Um, And so I noticed that I was actually pretty good at, Looking at an issue, giving a correction, and it would work it at work. It would work out, mm-hmm. and so I thought, oh wow, I guess I, I might be pretty good at this. And so you know, the one thing that I am is also I don't know if it's smart or stupid. Um, probably a little bit of both. <laughs> then I just opened a school in in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh huh. I was reading um, about that as well. That's wild. How did yeah. that happen? How do you just open a school? Well, uh, uh, I went in with a business partner. She uh-huh. was from my old school in Maryland. And so she wanted to open a school. She said, my dream is to open a school like the one we had when we were growing up. And I thought, you know, I would, I would help her for a few years. Uh, so I, I went in with her and, you know, we put in some money and we opened this school. And then she said, well, we have somebody, somebody has to choreograph the waltz of the flowers. We have this full length, but nobody has time to choreograph the waltz of the flowers. You're the only one left standing. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, 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 I, I am not going to choreograph. I don't choreograph. That's, mm-hmm. I, I don't do that. And so um, she said, well, you have to do it because there's nobody else. So it was so painful um, just listening to the music and going in and it just, it was so slow and I, I thought I was going to die, but by the end, the end product actually was pretty good. Yeah. And my business partner turned to me and she said, well, not only was that 
the best waltz of the flowers I've ever seen students do. She said, that's the best waltz of flowers I've ever seen. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I, maybe I have, you know. So then the next year I said, well, what is, what's the difference between Gary Killian and me? He went, he went over to the contemporary genre. Um, the only difference is, is he had courage. So I started choreographing contemporary ballet uh-huh. and I did that for many, many years. And I, I was still doing that in Pittsburgh and just to say ballet theater will never see my choreography, uh, because we have so many great ones uh, here. So you have no choreographic aspirations with American Ballet Theater? No. Really? Why do you want to give up on it like that? Um, It's not wanting to give up. I just feel like you can only do one thing at a time. And my my job is is making sure the dancers have everything Mm -hmm. they need, uh, making sure everybody has everything they need. I want to fundraise, I, you know, so that I can do some more strategic things. Mm -hmm. And, um, you can't do that and choreograph at the same time. So you either, yeah, if you're choreographing, everything else (laughs) goes by the wayside. And so I just feel like, you know, ABT needs my full attention and I, yeah. and the dancers and all of that. So, you know, I've, I'll stage something, but mm-hmm. not start from scratch. So, yeah. yeah. I hear you. So anyway, so I did all those things. I, I, I came back as the queen. Then I started teaching. Then I started choreographing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, never say never. Um, Absolutely. Never yeah. say never. I mean, when yeah. I look, people ask me all the time, you know, what I'm going to do when I hang out my shoes. The problem is I don't like kids very much. So I think teaching is out of my future. But I do like coaching. I do like choreographing. I like writing. I like doing projects like this, like my podcast. I like learning about other people. So who knows, really? I never thought I would like kids. But I mean, I always taught the older ones who were professional Well, that I can do. I just yeah. don't like children. Children, yeah, they make me very uncomfortable. And and maybe I'll, I'll grow up at some point and, and like deal and maybe have kids of my own uh, somehow by some magic. Order one on Amazon, perhaps. Um. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Fifty. Then place a five dollar wager on any sport. You'll receive one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game part live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So I have another question for you. I'd love to know, uh, I don't know, let's say three ways that the company has changed since you danced in it. For better, for worse, whatever. Neutral. Do your thing. Number one, we had a lot more rehearsal. A lot more rehearsal. Now we have five weeks to get up like a full season. Five weeks of rehearsal, which is, it's, it's very, very challenging. And that has um, to do with money, I presume? Correct, yeah. So we have less time to rehearse. Uh, and I don't know if Ballet Theater had 38 weeks at, the, at that time. Mm-hmm. But we also toured about four months a year. We were on tour. So we would pack our suitcases and, you know, two, three months we would be on tour and then we'd come home and then we'd go out again. And so we were performing everywhere. So was the cost of running the company less and was demand higher? Demand was higher. And of course, yes, it was less. Everything was less uh, back then. Hmm. And, um, Now, you know, when I was in Pittsburgh, they showed me the spreadsheets of what the company made 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. let's just say from Swan Lake, Mm -hmm. and then the spreadsheet of what they make now. And back then, oh, they made three, four, five hundred thousand dollars. Now they lose three hundred thousand dollars. And so when I saw that budget, I, I was shocked. I said, wait, wait, you don't make money on this? And no, it's just a matter of how much do you lose? And the reason why is because the cost of theater goes up, the stagehands and the stagehands union that goes up either between two and a half to three and a half percent per year mm-hmm. and everything. And then the materials to make a full length ballet. I remember we were all so shocked when Misha's production of Cinderella cost $2 million. Can you imagine? Now we would say, Oh, isn't that amazing? Right. Um, but so everything is more expensive. Everything, airplanes, hotels, hurt. Everything is more expensive. And also, you know, we need to continue to increase our endowment. So that's, there, there are things that we need to do to just make sure that we can do everything we need to do. So, you know, in increasing endowments and essentially just making more money so the company can run with more creative freedom, I look at models of other companies and wonder what we can learn about them and what is tasteful and what is gauche. And, you know, I, at the risk of, being a naysayer, I find some of the ways companies make money by appealing to the masses um, to be frustrating. And then I get even more frustrated because they work. What is your level of willingness to, I don't want to say stoop, but um, to 
offer up more palatable work? Um, I know I don't. Um, I don't think uh, that, that that would be a good way for ABT to go. When I was in Pittsburgh, there was a lot of family-friendly ballets, which really kind of went against my grain because I grew up here, you know, at ABT. Mm-hmm. And, and then I came to ABT and I said, well, do you all, are you, um, do you need to do family-friendly? And they said, oh, no, those don't sell. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a different audience. You know, the audiences um, here expect different things. And so that makes me happy because that's how I feel about work. Um, I, you know, the one thing that I find frustrating is that there are many amazing ballets, like for example, Alexei's Brightstream, Mm -hmm. the Brightstream. It's an incredible ballet. I agree. A great story. It is funny that dancing is amazing and because audiences don't know it it doesn't sell so that's really the trick so how do you you keep bringing something back and market it in a way that it becomes familiar like swan lake became familiar so um i do think that there are ways i just do think it will take time uh to do that absolutely and so yeah. Kevin said, you know, the more interesting the ballet, the less it sells. Uh, yeah, he, you know, jokingly <laughs> yeah. said. Um, I wonder if at some point adaptations of well-known stories can indeed end up being popular as opposed to something that is uh, frowned upon as tasteless or tacky. I wonder if incredible works can be created out of something known and that's just a question for the world to think about well you know you see these ballets the little mermaid that was done in san francisco john neumeyer the crucible that was done by helen pickett for scottish ballet award-winning you know anna karenina in um joffrey for, mm. from Pozakov, uh Streetcar Named Desire by Annabelle Lopez Ochoa and by Neumeyer. I mean, there are these ballets, Lady of the Camellias, Eugene Onegin. There are many ballets, Meyerling, that are stories, that are novels, that are, Mm -hmm. and so, and they were all made into these major ballets. And then a year from now, um, we're doing a full length for the Coke. On Crime and Punishment by Helen Pickett. Ah, uh, yes, I, I heard about this. Well, that's yeah. exciting. So it is exciting. What sort mm-hmm. of? I mean, I look back on our time doing Jane Eyre, which is a wildly famous novel, and I look at the ticket sales for that, which is a very, very famous book, and they were not good, and I don't know, I don't have the answers here, but I worry that these adaptations will fall into the same category of disinterest to the public. Do you have any ideas or ways that you'd like to make it more important to New York audiences and to people on the internet and all over the world? Yes. Uh, Well, 
I think it's also familiarity, to be honest. Uh, people, they think, oh, I have to go see Swan Lake. You know, Swan Lake's been around for 200 years, um, more than 200 years. Uh, I have to go see Don Quixote, you know. And they're the classics. That's why they're, you know, they sell. Um, mm. But I do think the new story ballets, the more they're marketed, the more we talk about them, I think the more interest w- there will be. But I also, you know, so I was in New York City during the summers and um, from 1975. And I had an aunt and uncle that lived up on 90 something in West End Avenue, and they were Balatomains. And their friends were Balatomains. And, and they knew the history of ballet. They were all on it about every single dancer from all the companies, and they particularly loved the Royal. And, oh, they would go to the old Met, and that was in, in the 40s. So during that time, there was no box office on the web. And if you wanted a ticket to that ballet, you better stand in line. Mm. And so people like that would sleep around the Met overnight to get a ticket. Mm. And what I discovered was that it wasn't just like they were maniacal about ballet, but that they were educated. They were really educated about even the ballets themselves. And so I thought what I would do here is just make it super easy for the audiences to know more about what they're about to see. Mm -hmm. So we um, have hired somebody who's going to do podcasts. So you put your earphones in and get a short version of a 10-minute version. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to get a 20-minute version if you have time, if you want to do that. But it's not necessarily just a synopsis. It's the background of the ballet, of the people who made the ballet, the culture, the, uh, the, um, what was going on at the time politically, how these ballets came to be, what were the customs, and all of those things. Hmm. And then um, the universal themes of the ballets, so the deeper meanings of these ballets. and. Um, just use today's technology to do that so that, you know, you throw your headphones on, you're in the subway, you're coming up and you're, you're getting a good background about what you're about to see. And I do find, yeah, I do find that the more people know, the more they enjoy it. Absolutely. Yes. I agree completely with that. And, you know, with regards to the box office and waiting in line and everything, uh, just the nature of entertainment has changed so much in a hundred years, and I just I, I don't understand it, and I am concerned. But I I love the idea of educating people, making them excited about knowing more about the the history of a ballet. And I don't know about you, but do you know what IMDb is? It's like the Internet Movie Database. Oh, yeah. I adore, uh, if I'm going to watch a movie or after I've seen a film, I'll, I'll go on there and I'll look up the film and they have all these tidbits about the process of making the film, perhaps behind the scenes videos of 
of the actors working on lines and this, that, and the other, and also fun things like trivia and goofs, and it's just fabulous. So yes, I appreciate uh, the synopsis plus, and uh, if you need a narrator, you know where I'm at. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to keep moving on through my questions here. Okay. I would like to know uh, how the dancers themselves have changed since you were a dancer in the company to now? Well, I think, first of all, the technique is so much more, just gets more and more advanced every year. So things that the dancers are doing today, we, we wouldn't even dream of doing, you know? So it's really that, you know, when I think about, oh my gosh, would I have ever been able to do an Alexei Rutmansky Nutcracker Parada? I don't think I would have been able to do it. Honestly, it's so hard. It's yeah, so hard. It's crazy. <laughs> and, you know, there, you, you all have been exposed to so much more choreography than my generation. You know, huh. we were really more about the classics and the dramatics. We did get some innovative work. We did do a little bit of that. But we spent, you know, much of our year going from city to city to city, doing Swan Lake, Giselle, Sleeping Beauty, you know, those mm. kinds of ballets. So, um, so the technique is, is much, um, is, is just much more advanced. And also the pathways in people's bodies are more developed. You know, the circuitous movement of Alexei's counterbalance, counterpoint um, way of moving it was not, did not exist in my generation. So what about the personalities, the work ethics, things like that? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the people at ABT have a great work ethic. Um, so, and, and, you know, it's, you're, you're coming in and you're, you're at the top. I think that that's really uh, important. I do think there's a lot of focus at Ballet Theater. I, I don't know if that's true around the country um, as much. I, I, you know, I, it's hard to keep, it's hard to get people to work this hard. Hmm. It's, you have to work really, 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 really hard. I appreciate the independence afforded to the artists of ABT. I, I danced for Boston Ballet for 10 years, and those were my early professional years, 18 to 28. And um, I don't know if it was because I was a young dancer or if it was the culture of the company, which, you know, gave me so much. And, you know, I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but it was a very moderated professional experience. Whereas when I joined ABT in, uh, what was that, 2012, it was up to me whether or not I succeeded. and the people who are not willing to show up and to give more than they knew they had to give uh, do not continue to receive opportunities for very long. And so I, I watched that happen firsthand and I was grateful for my opportunities and eager as hell. And that works. Yes. No, I agree. If you know, you can have the perfect facility and have everything. Um, but if you don't work your tail off, you will not progress. And 
people sense it. They come into the room, uh, they sense your sort of lack of interest and integrity and people don't want to see that because what makes dance interesting, right? It's not, oh, I'm really pretty. I've got this um, great body and I can do all these things. Um, but, but who am I? What, what am I doing? What am I conveying? Uh, that is the important thing. So it, it takes so much of your of your your will and your soul and your spirit and your your perseverance to be at a top level. And people who don't do that, and just as James said, do not make it. They do not make it. Um, they might get one opportunity, maybe two opportunities, and then. If they're not progressing to another level, um, they they don't get another opportunity. So it's you know it, it's brutal, um, but at the same time, you know you create your own destiny. Do you have international touring aspirations for ABT? To, you know, bring it back to that big touring company company that it once was. Well, it looks like we're going to be doing a lot of touring in 2024. Just an FYI. Um, that's fantastic. So, yeah. There'll be, there'll I miss be a lot, touring. Yeah. I love touring. There'll be a lot less sort of empty holes in the, during the year, mm-hmm. there'll be more consistency of dancing throughout. I, how does this work? Because, uh, what I've been told is that we actually tend to lose money on tours. They are so expensive flights, hotels, everything. And the, the theaters and organizations that present American ballet theater at such and such, you know, auditorium aren't offering as much money as they used to. So if indeed we are touring more, how is it, how is it going to work? Well, we're touring internationally and that is, they're more supportive of the company. They're able to take better care of the company. So I see. Yeah. That makes a, a lot of sense. We have a really hard time convincing Americans to um, invest in the arts. You know, we've been fighting uh, the government taking the arts out of the school, you know, and that's where it starts. You know, everybody thinks sports is important and math and science, but not the arts. And uh, there's so many studies about the more arts, a child is exposed to actually the better their test scores and the more likely they are to graduate high school and get a college degree and the more um, foundation they have more grounded they are. And Mm -hmm. like, for example, um, in young children, when, when they learn how to dance, they actually have the highest level of critical thinking skills. So there's all this data about the arts uh, out there in the country. Uh, it's just that in the in the larger institutions, they want to focus on math. They want to focus on science, and they hmm. they they are doing a disservice um, to this country to to the the future generations. To be honest, yeah, I agree. I mean, I was. Uh... 
a very artsy kid, as you can imagine. And my, you know, when I found dance was really the only time I felt comfortable being, I don't know, me in a way, you know, all of, all of the social pitfalls of a young gay middle schooler, you know, were sort of erased by the community I found in, in dance and in art. So giving people an opportunity to find that space is really, really more important than I think people recognize, sadly. But, you know, there are, there are huge amount of people that absolutely love dance and can't get enough of it and understand it at a deep level. You know, I was thinking about this in relation to Europe because Europeans grew up with ballet and it is a serious art form in Europe. And uh, everybody's going to the theater. They're going to ballet. They're going to opera. And they they are educated in it. And yeah, they also like their sports. But they will go to the ballet. Those, those theaters are full with audience members. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's really... Um, it just you know in America it's just a different it's a different thing up around the arts. Europeans really do understand the depths of the arts and appreciate them. Yeah, no, I agree, and I I look at you know company repertoire and other companies, and I I feel like American Ballet Theater's rep is most closely related to the Royal Ballet's rep in London. Do you want to keep American Ballet Theater, a predominantly classical ballet company? I would like to preserve the classics. Yes. Okay. That leads to my next question here. Um, How do we keep ballet's classics in the rep uh, when many of them are, you know, racist or homophobic or misogynistic, all of the above? How do you keep ballets like Les Corsaire in the repertoire um, without you know, as Kevin would say, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, this is interesting because I was talking with uh, a designer about La Bayadere. And, you know, yeah. La Bayadere has been, you know, severely frowned upon over the last couple of years. And I do think it is a brilliant ballet, and particularly the second act where in the shades, you know, I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in ballet. Yeah, I agree. And um, so I, I talked with this designer, and I said, let's, let's save Bayadere. And hmm. he went off, and he spoke to two different scholars uh, about the ballet, um, Hindu scholars. And they both, they were both women. One woman was here in New York. One woman was in London. And they said, well, actually, there's not that much wrong with it. There are a few things. Um, for example, this bow with the head and the heart, that's mm-hmm. Turkish. All right. So, so now you see a misinterpretation of a white person, um, thinking that they were celebrating, right? And, and now it's in the wrong country, right? So mm-hmm. that's Turkish. Um, the fakirs who create the mm-hmm. fire, 
actually fakir is the highest rank in the temple. So like the, the highest level. So there are things that are completely wrong and those can be rectified. Those can be fixed. Um, and I'm not going to do it tomorrow, but I will do it. Mm. Um, I think right now it's just too raw of a subject, but I will do it. And my, my next concern is that, is it right for a company of predominantly white dancers to perform a work like that? Well, you know, I think the most important thing is, did the choreographer do his or her research? I don't think that now ABT has to do everything Americana. Yeah. And only the Hispanic people can d- dance Don Q. And only, mm-hmm. you know, that's, we're, we are an art form. We are an art form and we have encompassed everything for, you know, 300 years almost. Mm-hmm. And um, so as long as the choreographer has done their due diligence and we are representing um, the story in an authentic way. And that doesn't mean we also can't have fantasies. Um, for example, in mm. Don Q, he has a fantasy about the triads, right? I don't believe that only people of that ethnicity or culture or race should be dancing something that only has that ethnicity or culture or race. And, um, I don't think the other art forms are, are, are being asked to do that as fervently as ballet. Um, I think film is. Yes, but even, you know, I mean, I've heard a lot of negative rhetoric about dance in relation to gender. So we shouldn't have men and men dancing men's roles anymore and women dancing women's roles anymore. And now the women should start lifting the men and you've got to get rid of all of the ballets that have a binary story to it. And they're not saying to the filmmakers, well, you can't make a story about a man and a woman anymore. Mm. They're not. And they're not saying to a soprano, well, now you have to sing the tenor voice and you're not saying to the tenor, well, now you have to sing the soprano voice. I don't think it's quite about that. I think it's more about filling out the ratios and telling stories that aren't just about a man and a woman, but creating the space for a person who is a very talented, highly capable, non-binary or trans dancer. So I agree, and I don't think that means we shouldn't be able to do any of the ballets that have created what we know ballet to be today. But I do want queer stories. I do want stories that celebrate Asian cultures and, and whatever, really, Black culture, all of it. And I, I agree with you that in the future, the choreographic intent uh, needs to be paid serious attention. And I look at ballets of the past, pedipaw ballets, who, which are brilliant and, and so deeply the core of what we do and who we are, but I look at, you know, is this comedy or is this drama? What is the purpose of this part of the story? And how are we telling it? You know, and I, I love La Bayadere as a ballet. It's so gorgeous. And I think about things like Le Corsair, which is 
uh, largely a comedy in our version. And I find that to be where we, it, it gets really um, uncomfortable and, and incorrect. Yeah, I am concerned about Le Corsair uh, at this point. The, uh, the, whole, the whole ballet is about slavery and um, making fun and uh, enslaved women, selling women, uh, also in, you know, a different culture and all of those things. Uh, I, I think Le Corsair has to be seriously reworked. And uh, at this point, there's so much wrong with it. <laughs> um, sure is. <laughs> that, you know, I'm not sure I would be the one to personally try to rethink that in tech. But, you know, there might be somebody who says, you know what, I have a, a new version of Corsair and this is what it looks like. And, um, and maybe it would be good. So, mm-hmm. you know, but again, you know, then there are the new stories of love and rage. Um, I'm in punishment. Um, the bright stream is rather, well, it's an old new story. Um, mm. and, so we are telling stories that are um, newer, and yeah. we can expand that into, well, we just did Touche, uh, for example. Yeah. We did Touche. We did Lifted uh, with Chris Rudd. So things are expanding. I just think, you know, patience is, is really important. You know, you cannot, you cannot turn the, sh- the, the wheel of a cruise ship Quickly, because the cruise ship will fall over. So you've got to um, be patient. Things are coming in. People are growing. People are expanding. Younger generations are coming up. There will be that um, that change, but it will not be tomorrow. Um, mm. It is coming, yeah. but um, it, it, it's just going to take longer than we all expected. Yes. And, you know, I, gosh, you, you do have quite a task ahead of you and I don't envy you, but I do believe in you. And, uh, I really look forward to the coming years with you at the helm. So I just want to offer my congratulations and welcome. And I think that's a really excellent place to wrap up this interview. And I just want to thank you, Susan, for taking the time to be so thoughtful and uh, answer my questions. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Susan, where can people follow you on the internet? Do you have an Instagram? What have you got? Mm-hmm. I've got Susan Jaffe official. Mm-hmm. And, and anywhere else, YouTube or anything. I mean, I re- highly recommend just going on YouTube and typing in Susan Jaffe and watching some gorgeous, I mean, stunning ballet videos. Yes. And I also have a Facebook, but I never, you know, I have these accounts, but I don't really use them very often. So, but <laughs> I enough. use them to look at everybody else's. Things, so, yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you, Susan. Thanks for joining me on Front Row, and I'll see you at work tomorrow. <laughs> see you at work tomorrow. Have a great evening. Thanks. Bye. Don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast. And if you like it, share it with your friends or on social media. You can follow me on all social platforms by searching James Whiteside. My book, Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir, is available everywhere in all formats.
Front Row uses music from the song A Flat by Black Violin. Check out the show notes on jamesbwhiteside.com for exclusive video and audio from this podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.